Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to what is going to be our last week, for a little while at least, in the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to finish up chapter 4 today, and then, can you believe it, next week starts Lent. Uh, And this coming Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, and Lent starts. So we will come out of 1 Corinthians and do a Lenten series to prepare ourselves for Easter. And then at some point after Easter, haven't figured out exactly when or how, we will come back to the book of 1 Corinthians. But we're going to finish up today chapter 4, which is sort of wrapping up Paul's final appeal about unity. After this, in chapter 5, he's going to begin to deal with all those different issues and problems that we've talked about are going on in the church. But if you remember, we said when we started this section many weeks ago that the first thing Paul says we need is unity. That, that's the big rock, the first one to go in. That, that, that's what everything else is going to hang off of. First, we need to be unified in Christ. And so we're going to finish up his argument, and we're sort of Picking him up in midstream. If you remember last week, we talked about how he starts this section saying, hey, think like this. This is how you need to think. And he talks about these two sort of opposing ideas of that we have this low position, but also this high position. And we talked about that. He's going to continue to play on that idea, only he's going to get a little more pointed. (laughs) He's going to become a little more direct. If last week was sort of the theory, this week is kind of going to be the application. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to read from verse 8 down through the end of the chapter. So read along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter Chapter 4, verses 8 through 21. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you really had begun to reign, so that we might reign with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to human beings. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags, we're brutally treated, we're homeless. We work hard with our hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. We have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up to this moment. I'm writing this not to shame you, But to warn you as my dear children, even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, my son, whom I love, who is faithful in the Lord. He will remind you of my ways of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. Some of you have become arrogant, as if I were not coming to you. But I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then we will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a rod of discipline, or shall I come in love and with a gentle spirit? And so as I said, we're kind of chopping Paul up here. You know, when we, we go through the scriptures, we, we go through it section by section and we dive in. And I, I try never to preach a section bigger than what I think I can explain because we are separated so far from the scriptures. You know, we are 2,000 years from Paul 
different culture, different habits, different way of life, different way of looking at things. And in the Old Testament, we're even further. We're 3,500 years from Moses. So we take smaller sections and we dive in and we talk about, like last week where we talked about these, these two words Paul is using, a really low servant and a really high servant. And since we don't have those in our world, we have to stop and explain. But of course, when Paul is writing this, he's just writing. that This last sec- section here in chapter four, you know, all of four is this argument he's making where he's summing up this idea of unity. And so he's still talking about these ideas of high and low. Do you notice how he's kind of talking about the Corinthians' high position and then the apostles' low position? And he's using here in verse eight, and again, we don't know it because we don't do this, he's using the language of philosophy. We've talked about that several times in the book of Corinthians, how he's using this Greek idea of wisdom, a a philosophy, a, a way of life, a worldview, and he's doing that in verse 8 when he says, you already have all you want, or or literally, you already are full, already you're rich, already you're reigning. These are concepts that the philosophers talked about. When they talked about having wisdom, having a, a way of life, they talked about these things, that if you had the right wisdom, the right philosophy on life, the right worldview, then you would have fullness. You would have true riches. And when Paul talks about reigning, it, he's actually kind of almost making a joke. He's playing on this idea in the ancient world. It's almost like an ancient meme. Way back in the 400 years before Paul, Plato wrote that the greatest ruler, the best possible government you could have, would be the philosopher king. The king that had the right worldview, knew what was best for his country or city or whatever he ruled, and then imposed that on the people. And so this is almost a running joke in philosophy over hundreds and hundreds of years. Like I said, it's kind of like the ancient world's version of a meme. This idea of the philosopher king. You know, the philosophers would say, oh, we should be the kings. We're the ones that should be in charge, not the military guys. What do they know? And Paul's playing on that. He's using this language. He's like, oh, you guys, you're like the philosopher kings. You've got it all together. You're already full. You're already rich. Like He's talking about this, this high, oh, you're so high. You've already got all of that. And then he flips it. He flips it and says, oh, wow, boy, I really wish that was true because I would love to be up here with you because I'm not up here at all. And he makes this statement in verse nine. It seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. Now, when, what he actually writes doesn't have the word procession, condemned, or arena in it. We add those, the translators add those for you to try and help you understand what's going on. What Paul literally says is just, it seems to me that God has displayed us apostles last like the dying. Because everybody who read that would have known exactly what he meant. If you've hung out ever before, watched a Roman movie, studied Latin, read a book about ancient Rome. Like You've heard of the Colosseums. You've heard of the gladiatorial games. Those didn't just happen in Rome. You know There is the Colosseum in Rome. You can still go visit it today. Every major city had a Colosseum. Corinth had a Colosseum. We found it. We excavated it. It holds like almost 20,000 people. It was a huge event, and we don't know whether, like, it seems like, oh, you know, something probably happened at the Colosseum in some regular fashion of weekly or so, but then every month or several months or something, you'd have these giant spectacles where gladiators would come and 
animals would come, and, and it, it really was like a sporting event. You'd have teams. They'd go and build a Roman fort in the center of the arena, and one team would guard the fort, and the other team would attack the fort, and there'd be a time limit, and people would be betting. You know, green team is attacking, and red team is defending, and, and you've got three hours, or, you know, until the sun gets to some point on the sundial, and, and people are betting on who's going to win, and you know, the, if you take the fort in that time, you win. If you defend the fort in that time, you win, and, and the idea wasn't to kill each other, although certainly people got killed doing this. The idea was to win. Guys would come out and fight lions. We actually know that, that they were able to flood some of their coliseums, and they'd have naval battles. Can you imagine 20,000 people in the stands watching naval battles as ships maneuver and fight, and, and you're trying to destroy ships and take captives, and the, the games were a huge huge deal. They were a huge part of life. Everyone knew about them. Probably everyone had been to them. The last thing that would happen at the games, like Paul says, he's made us, he's displayed us apostles last. The last thing that happened is that the criminals would be brought in. You know, Rome didn't have what we would call sort of an enlightened criminal justice system. They had two punishments for you. They beat you or they killed you. That's pretty much it. If you did something really minor, like shoplifting, you would be beaten. Public nuisance, public drunkenness, that sort of thing, you got beaten. Anything more than that was a capital offense. Breaking and entering, they're going to execute you, right? Attacking someone, they're going to execute you. This, this is normal in the Roman world. And one of the common things they did was... They would just hold everybody until they had the games. And then they'd come out at the end when everything was over, they would bring the criminals out all shackled and tied up um, and they would kill them in a variety of interesting ways for people to watch. You, can you imagine that? Imagine at the end of every Falcons home game, the jails in Fulton County are emptied. Anybody who's done breaking and entering, stealing a car, or more serious, is hauled out there. No pads, no nothing. The players come back out and play football with them until they're beaten to death. Or they stake guys at certain lengths, you know, 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards, and they'll have, instead of throwing footballs, they'll throw javelins. And we'll see who can hit the most people. They would take all these criminals at the end and they would kill them. That's what Paul's alluding to. And everybody here would have heard it and everybody here would have known it. God has displayed us at the end like the dying. We're like the criminals. We're like, as he says at the end, the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. They get hauled in in chains to the arena at the end of the games and slaughtered, just completely slaughtered. It was not necessarily the idea when the gladiators are fighting to, to try and kill each other. It was absolutely the idea to kill these criminals. They're being executed. Paul says that's what it's like for us. He says we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, not just to the people in the arena, to everybody, to all the men, to the spiritual world as well, to, to, to angels, that word spectacle. In his language, it's theatron. It's our word theater. Paul says, we are put up on stage for everybody, human and angelic, to look at. 
And do you hear the things he says? He, he, again, he starts out with those, using these ideas of philosophy. You're wise, we're fools. You're strong, we're weak. You're honored, you're dishonored. To this very hour now, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We're brutally treated. Literally, we're beaten with fists. We're beaten, we're homeless. We work hard with our hands. That's not a good thing in his world. Philosophers don't work with their hands. Rulers don't work with their hands. Slaves work with their hands. Like he says, you know, we're, we're the lowest of the low. We do menial labor to survive. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Wow, can you imagine like again, he's playing with these ideas of high and low. The Corinthians, like, they seem to have a really high opinion of themselves. They think that they're doing really well. You know, he, he's comparing them. Again, I'm sure this is ironic and tongue in cheek, but he's using the language of, oh, you're the philosopher kings. You're the, the rich and the wise and the full. And, and Paul says, and, and we're, we're down here. We're the criminals condemned to die in the arena. Can you imagine reading this and getting this from Paul? I don't like this letter. I don't like this passage. I don't like what this passage tells me. And I know from scripture that Paul's telling the truth. Like he really did these things. He's not just blowing smoke. He's not just trying to make himself look great. Oh yes, poor me. It's so hard to be an apostle. He is talking about what his life is actually like. We have a story in the book of Acts where he's in the city of Philippi. It's not actually all that far from the city of Corinth. It's another big metropolitan city in Greece. And he gets arrested there, as you know, often happens to him. Um, and the, the officials tell the jailer, hey, hang on to this guy until tomorrow. We'll decide what to do with him tomorrow. And so the jailer beats him. It's Paul and another guy named Silas. They've both been arrested. He beats them. He chains them up and he puts them in what we translate the stocks. Now, it's not like our stocks, you know, like, you know, you see people with their head and all in the wood over them. It was a thing for your legs that kept your legs splayed out. So you were in way too much pain to ever sleep. So your arms are chained up to the wall, your legs are splayed out, and you are just in pain the whole time. Jared didn't have to do that. I mean, that's, at least that's not what he's told. He's just told to keep them overnight until the officials decide what to do with them. You know, they're going to beat him. They're going to kick him out of town. Whatever's going to happen. But the jailer's just kind of being cruel. And he beats them and he chains them and he puts them in the stock. Like, he's just causing them pain. That night, we're told, there's an earthquake and the gates of the jail collapse. The chains that are holding Paul and Silas to the wall, they come loose. The, the stock that's holding their legs out in this painful position, this is after midnight and they're still awake because that's what the stocks would do. They would keep you awake. And the stocks collapse and they're free. And the jailer comes running in, sees that the gates are off, that the chains are down, and he assumes that they've left. Like he assumes they have escaped. And remember, as we said, Rome's criminal justice system is a little on the severe side. The penalty for losing a prisoner is death. If you're a, if you're a jailer, if you're a policeman, and someone gets away from you, then we kill you in their place. So he knows that he is either going to end up tortured, crucified in the arena at the end of the game. Something really bad's going to happen to him. So he pulls his sword to kill himself. Paul sees it. He's still in the jail and he starts yelling to the guy, don't hurt yourself. Don't hurt yourself. We're still here. 
Don't hurt yourself. All he had to do was keep his mouth shut. If Paul had kept his mouth shut, the man that five, six, seven hours ago beat the snot out of him, chained him to a wall, and just for cruelty's sake, put him in the stocks to keep him awake all night, that guy would have killed himself. And Paul would have nothing to do with it. He'd be totally innocent of it. And then he could get up and walk away. And Paul doesn't do it. Paul does exactly what he says here. When we are cursed, we blessed. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. When a guy who tried to beat the snot out of us, who has just been wantonly cruel to us a few hours ago, is about to harm himself, we stop him. And that jailer, he gets a torch. He comes into Paul's cell. He falls down at Paul's feet. And he says, oh, oh, what do I have to do? What do I have to do to be saved? And Paul actually lived this. He did this. He lived this low, low position. And I don't think he's just talking about like himself as an apostle and the 12. You know, for us, apostles are a religious word. Like we think of the apostles as, oh, those are the 12 guys that Jesus called to himself. And they are called apostles as well. But, but in the world of the Bible, apostle just means herald. It literally just means somebody who's sent out on a mission. The Roman government had thousands of heralds, thousands of apostles. That's how news traveled. Every time a law was made by the Senate in Rome, apostles carried it out to the whole Roman government. I mean, it could take years for news to spread across the whole empire. They used apostles. They used heralds. I think Paul's talking about pretty much anybody in ministry himself, Apollos, Peter, I mean, all these different people that have been sent out into ministry. Paul says, this is what it's like for us. You guys, oh, you're so high, you're so great. Let me tell you about how we live. And again, he means it. He does it. We have the stories. This is how he lived. He really did these things. I don't like this passage. I don't like what this passage says about me. Paul goes on in verse 14 and says, I'm not writing this to shame you. I'm writing this to warn you. But brothers and sisters, I kind of feel ashamed. You know, he's, again, we, we said, he's closing up his section on unity. That's where all this is about, being unified in the church. Can you imagine there being any possible divisions in a church if we acted like this? If when we are cursed, we blessed. If when we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond with kindness. Is there any possible way that we would have factions and fighting in our church if we acted like this? Is there any way we would have factions and fighting in our country if we acted like this? You know, there are Christians on both sides of the political divide. There are Christians who feel very strongly about Republican politics. There's Christians who feel very strongly about Democratic politics. There's Christians who feel very strongly about Libertarian politics. There's Christians who thinks anybody who feels strongly about politics is crazy. Like, there's Christians all over the spectrum of politics. We can disagree about all those things. The Bible doesn't say how to vote. It doesn't say what party to belong to. But could we ever possibly end up in a fight if we acted like this? If when people cursed us, we blessed them. If when people slandered us, we responded with kindness. If when we were persecuted, we endured it. I don't like this passage. 
I don't like what it says about me. And my discomfort does not end in verse 14. Because in this whole passage, there's only one command. There's only one thing that Paul says in this entire section from 8 to 21 where Paul actually says, do this. It's in verse 16. I urge you to imitate me. That's the one thing Paul tells them. And again, remember he told us at the beginning, he's writing, this, this is true for all of Christendom. He's writing to all Christians everywhere. Imitate me. Think about what he's just said about his life. Think about what he said his life is like. Homeless, hungry, thirsty, beaten, in rags, menial labor, cursed, persecuted, slandered, the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world, right up until this moment. Did you notice he, he puts that at both ends? You know, he says in verse 11, to this very hour, this happens. And he ends with right up until this moment. Like, he's not talking about something in the past. Yeah, it used to be like this, but it's better now. He's talking about right now. This is what my life is like, Paul says. So you imitate me. I don't like this passage because I'm not doing that. I'm not imitating Paul when he says this. And he keeps going, right? I want you to imitate me. Therefore, I'm going to send Timothy to you. I'm going to send you a model. This is so important, Paul says. And it is because it's unity. It's the unity in the church that they need before they go on to deal with all these other issues. This is so important, Paul says. I'm going to send someone to you to model it to teach it, to remind you. Timothy, he says in verse 17, he will remind you of my way of life in Christ Jesus, which agrees with what I teach everywhere in every church. You know, I would so love for this not to be true about us. You know, there, there's things in the Bible, right? Commands in the Bible that aren't true for us. They were written to certain people at certain times. We don't have to obey them. Paul will tell Timothy many years after this in his final letter in 2 Timothy, he'll tell Timothy because Timothy is coming to visit him in jail. Paul will say, hey, I left some clothes and some books in the city of Troas. Right, I guess Timothy knows where he stayed. Would you pick them up on your trip? Would you stop off there and bring them to me? Now, that's a command in scripture, but it's not a command to us. I'm not preaching to you guys. Okay, everybody, we're all going to Troas to find Paul's clothes, and then we're going to go to Rome to visit him in prison, right? It was written to one guy at one time. It's not to us. I would so love for this not to be written to us. Oh, yeah, that was for them, the Corinthians. Look what Paul says. This is my way of life. I teach this everywhere, in every church. Remember what he said at the beginning of the letter, I'm writing to all Christians everywhere. This is absolutely applied to us. And I don't like it, because I'm not doing it. I, I don't think of life this way. Can you imagine if this were normal for us? Could anyone ever say this about us? I mean, if you're watching, I assume you're part of Dunwoody Community Church. Can you imagine anyone saying this about Dunwoody Community Church? Yeah, personally, uh, I think they're the scum of the earth. But you can't deny that you treat them like dirt, and they treat you nice back. You can't deny, yep, I think they're garbage. But you can't deny that you curse them. They don't curse you back. They bless you. They respond with good when you do them harm. Would anybody 
ever say that about us? Would anybody ever say that about me? I don't like this passage. I don't like what Paul's saying. I don't like what it means I read this. So I've been reading this all week and asking God the same question. How? (laughs) How do we do this? How is this possible? Like, again, I would love to say, oh, Paul's tossing out some ideal, right? Yes, okay, this is the ideal Christian life, but I understand no one actually attains that. It's not, again, we have the stories in Acts. We know he actually lived like this. He thinks it's so important. He's, whatever Timothy's doing, he's sending Timothy to Corinth to remind them of this and to model it for him. And how could you have fights if you lived like this? I've been asking God all week reading this passage. How? How do you do this? How is this even possible? And I... I I think there's two clues in the text. I think Paul gives us two clues. The first thing he says is in verse 18 and 19. In verse 18, where he says, some of you have become arrogant. He says in verse 19, you know, we'll see how those arrogant people are talking. I think about, okay, like, why don't I do this? Why am I not willing to be put on display? I don't like this idea that God has done this intentionally to those he has sent out. That's what Paul says. God has intentionally displayed us like those criminals coming into the arena. That's an intentional display. It's supposed to be a deterrent. They're gonna execute them, so let's execute them horribly in front of everyone. So if you ever think about breaking and entering, you remember, oh, remember what they did to that guy in the arena? Like it's an intentional display that the government is doing. Paul says that's what God's doing with us. He's intentionally displaying us so that people see, just like that story of the jailer. The jailer saw Paul, saw Paul save his own life when he had been cruel to Paul. And he wants to be saved. He wants whatever it is Paul has. I mean, it says Paul and Silas have been in there singing and Paul's been preaching in the city. He knows who Paul is and what Paul's doing. And now all of a sudden he sees this display in Paul's life. And he wants it. I think arrogance is part of my problem. Maybe it's part of your problem. I don't want God to do this. Like I I look at God and I look at me and I say, thank you very much for your advice, Lord, but I'll decide. I'll run my own life and I don't want to run my life like this. I don't want to be homeless. I don't want to be hungry. I don't want to be thirsty. I don't want to be in rags. I don't want to be beaten. I don't want to be the scum of the earth. I don't want to be garbage. And I don't think Paul did either. I mean, you know, I realize he's kind of tongue-in-cheek when he said, wow, I really wish you were reigning. I would love to reign with you too. But I also think there's some truth in that. I don't think he's a masochist and thinks this is great. But he does think this is God. He thinks God is doing this intentionally, just like Rome intentionally killed those criminals at the end of the gladiatorial games. God's doing this so people will see how his people respond to the world. So people will see what's going on inside them. And I think, you know, I don't want that. In my arrogance, I think, no, I don't want that. I don't want what you want for me. If that's that's what you want, wow, um, that seems like a lot, Lord, that you would put me on display. Let these things happen so that people see these truths about you. I think the first clue in how we do this is we have to renounce arrogance. We have to renounce any arrogance of our own lives that that we get to choose and we get to decide. 
I don't. I mean, I don't know about you. I, I can't say what you've told God, but I know what I've told him. I've told him, Jesus, I, I, I need you. I can't run my own life. I need you to run my life. Well, Paul said the same thing, and here's how God's running his life. I have to renounce any arrogance that, that I know what I'm doing, that, that I know what's best, that I get to decide. And then the second clue, I think, that's in this passage is what Paul says right after that. He says, we'll see how these arrogant people are talking, and we'll see what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The only possible way to do this is God's spirit's power. And he said that before, remember? He said, hey, you didn't become Christians because I made these great arguments or somebody had this great speech or they were very eloquent or they knew rhetoric. It's like, you became followers of Christ because the spirit's power in you. That, that's what we need. The only possible way to live like this is the spirit's power in us. And I think that's why God does it. It demonstrates when we respond like this, when we're blessed, when we're cursed and we bless back, when we're slandered and we respond with kindness, when we endure suffering, it demonstrates God's power in us, just like it did to that Philippian jailer all those years ago. It demonstrates the power of God's spirit at work in us. We need to repent of our arrogance that we're in charge and we run our own lives and we decide and we need to beg God for the power of his spirit. We need to beg him to, to fill us with the power of his spirit that we can live like this. So that's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna pray that. I'm gonna pray that for me and I'm gonna pray that for you. So if you don't want that, and I totally understand if you don't want that, this is kind of scary, um, then wow, turn this off now because I'm gonna pray. So, let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, yeah, I, I readily confess, I didn't like this passage when I started reading it a week ago, and I don't like it now. I don't like what it says about me, and I don't like what it says might happen. I, I, I readily confess, Lord, that, that, that I don't wanna be part of your theater. I don't wanna be up on stage, on display, all of these terrible things, so that the world can see your power in me. I confess that, Jesus, and I repent, it, repent of it. I repent of my arrogance that I can run my own life. I repent of my arrogance that I get to decide where I go and what I do. I repent of my arrogance, Lord, that the kingdom of God is there at my whim, and I will decide how I want to be part of it and what I want to do and what I don't. I repent, Lord, and I repent for my brothers and sisters as well who are watching. We repent, Jesus, of thinking that we can run our own lives and that though we call you Lord, which is what Paul says we all should be agreeing on, we call you Lord, but we don't do what you say. And we don't want to do what you say because sometimes what you say is scary. Lord, we repent of our arrogance that we will run our own lives. We will listen to your advice and then we will decide. We repent, Jesus. You are Lord. We are your servants. Whether we are the lowest of the low servants or the highest of the high servants, in either case, we are still servants. You still decide. Lord, we repent of our arrogance. Forgive us. And Jesus, we pray for your power. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit. There's no other way we can do this. 
Lord, there's no way we can bless people who curse us. There's no way we can respond with kindness to those who slander us. There's no way we can have these things happen to us. And we respond the way Paul says he responds, the way we see him responding in the scriptures without your Holy Spirit being alive and active and powerful in our lives. Jesus, make us a display of your power. Make us a display of your power in our lives by how we live. Do exactly what this scripture says. Put us on display so that people see you. People see your your power at work. That people come fall down before us and say, "What, what, what do I have to do? What do I need to do to be saved? That people see you at work in how we live because we live so different to how everyone else lives. Jesus, make that true in our church. I know right now people would probably say, well, they're, they're really great, and they would have nothing to say about how we handle adversity. Flip it around, Lord. Let them despise us if that's what needs to happen. But let everyone acknowledge that your power is at work in us because we don't curse people who curse us. We don't fight against people who fight with us. We respond with kindness and gentleness to people who do us harm. That like the Apostle Paul, we do not keep our mouths shut and let people harm themselves who have done us harm. We stop them because your power is at work in us. Jesus, we so need you to do this. There is no way we can make this happen on our own strength. So please, Make what Paul has said true in our lives because your kingdom is not about talk. And that's what I've done for the last 30 minutes. I've talked about this. Jesus, make it a matter of your power, your power at work in us that makes these things true, that that makes people come to us and acknowledge that the power of God is real because of what they see in our lives. Lord, do all this for your great glory. We pray in your name. Amen.